All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of God's word, let's go to the throne of grace in prayer and ask his guidance and direction this morning. Our Father, we're thankful that you have revealed your word to us. Father, as we read your word, as we study your word, we grow, we mature. It is by your word, our Lord prayed, that we would be sanctified. It is the basis for our spiritual growth. It is what you use to transform our thinking, to conform us to the image of Christ as we learn to think as he thinks. Now, Father, today we are studying a difficult passage in Hebrews, I mean in Ephesians, and we're studying difficult concepts. Help us to think clearly and to uh, understand what you have revealed, that we may be strengthened and encouraged and grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. We are in Ephesians chapter 1, so you might want to turn with me there as we begin, although we will not be spending much of our time in Ephesians 1 today because we are developing our understanding of that which Paul uh, refers in verse 4 when he talks about the fact that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And this opens up, as I've pointed out in the uh, previous lessons, just a whole series of issues and questions that have been debated since about the 5th century A.D., and there are there's been a lot of division. There's been a lot of conflict over some of these things within the church. There are people who, and groups that break fellowship over these things. And there's a lot of uh, poor methodology in terms of the study of Scripture. There's a lot of poor translation due to uh, translation translators who interpret rather than translate. By that I mean. They are giving you their theological interpretation of a verse without simply translating it. One of the things that opened my eyes to this years ago, I read a book on evangelical hermeneutics by one of the foremost scholars of hermeneutics, Robert Thomas, and he made the point that the role of a a translator of Scripture is to translate what the text says, not what he... interprets it to mean. That is the role of the pastor in the pulpit to interpret the text. And unfortunately, there are too many translations, and the one that comes to mind the most is the NIV, which I, that's not the worst, most egregious, but it's the one that's most popular within evangelical circles. 
Uh, I always liked what Wayne House said. He referred to it not as the New International Translation, but the New International Commentary. It's not really a translation, and there are too many places where you will look in vain for the words they chose in English to be a meaning for the Greek or Hebrew word that lies behind it. And this, of course, changes the meaning of the text. So that's one reason I do not recommend uh, the NIV. But the terms that we are looking at this week and further development from last week is what does this term foreknowledge mean in Scripture, and how does that relate to omniscience, the omniscience of God? And just to contextualize these first verses, this is part of this opening praise by Paul related to the blessings that we have given to us believers in this church age. The more I read through this, the more I am coming to understand that as we do so, what Paul is describing for us is the blessings that we have in Christ. The context here is he is talking about what believers have and enjoy as members of the body of Christ. So his focal point is not really in terms of being individually saved, but he's expressing the blessings we have corporately in Christ. So that, that's, that's the framework and it helps us to understand phrases like what we see in verse four, that he chose us in him. And too often, as I've been pointing out several times, what the way this is read by people is that he chose us and then they just stop. Or they will read it, he chose us to be in him, which is a selection to be saved. doesn't say that. There's no to be there. It is more the idea us in him is talking about us who are in him. So his focal point is on what is provided for those who are in Christ. It is the difference, as I pointed out last time, It is not so much that he is talking about God selecting those who would be in a certain building or in a certain house, but he is talking about those who are already in that building or in that house. Okay? We are all in Christ. We are in him. And he chose us in him for certain purposes. There's a, it's talking about the destiny and the purpose of the church. Those who are united with Christ by faith in Him. So it is the context of that has often been ignored. I pointed out last time that there are several words that tie these passage, this passage to other passages. We have the mention here of the word uh, to choose, which is the foundational word for election. It is connected to um, the word foreknowledge in First Peter one two, and also to predestination in Romans eight twenty nine. So these are foundational verses to understand what precedes this 
mention of choice. Also, there's no mention in Ephesians 1-3 of what the basis might be for the choice. We'll have to deal with that as we move along. But if he, uh, but First Peter one two says that it's choice. Now there we have to we'll get into some other issues, but it's choice, not election. Choice refers to the quality of the group. They are choice, and the reason we know it's not chosen or elect is because you you get the idea of, especially in the second phrase, by means of sanctification of the spirit. It's not chosen by means of sanctification of the Spirit. The word is, is choice, and we'll get to passages that, that talk about that. It talks about the quality of the group. They are choice or excellent because they possess the righteousness of Christ. And this happens by the sanctification of the Spirit. They are choice because of that work, or by means of that work, rather, of the sanctification of the Spirit. Romans 8.29, which we'll look at later this morning, gives us an order of distinct events, starting in verse 29, going through verse 30, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So that it's very clear here that whatever foreknowledge is, it is different from predestination. Now that's important because for a lot of Calvinists, uh, foreknowledge has this sense of to be uh, preordained, which is almost identical to predestination. And theologically, they will tie those together very closely. But here, even some Calvinists who are objective in their commentaries will indicate that these are distinct categories, distinct uh, acts. But then when they start to talk about it, they go back to conflating them together. I reviewed last time for us the history, the development of what is called Calvinism in contrast to Arminianism, went through the history that in the late 1500s, as these theological issues began to boil up within the Reformed Church in Holland, there was a group that was becoming condemned by the more a Calvinistic group who weren't, who were really developing their theology more beyond Calvin. And so they were known as remonstrants. Uh, they became identified historically more as Arminians because they were following the teaching of Jacobus Arminius. And they held to five points, total depravity, which we'll talk about more when we get to Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, and its distinction from total inability, which is what Calvinists countered with. A conditional election, because they understood that that the foreknowledge of God was not ignored in the process of salvation and God's plan. Uh, unconditional election, as articulated at the Synod of Dort, that there is no condition revealed for God's choice, and therefore there is no condition. It is arbitrary. You will find high Calvinists saying that it is arbitrary. And that is counter, I will say, to what the Scripture says. It's based on foreknowledge. They ignore that. They say God's omniscience has nothing to do with his elective choice. Third was unlimited atonement, which was countered by Calvinists with limited atonement. Uh, Arminians understood that Christ died for all, and 
Calvinists said he died only for the elect. Fourth, the doctrine of prevenient or resistible grace was articulated by the remonstrance, and it was countered by the idea of irresistible grace, that God, if God chose some to be saved, God, Christ only died for those to be saved, and so God is only going to call those who are elect, and he will do so in a way that you really can't resist. And then fifth, Arminians believed in the possibility of losing salvation, whereas in strict Dordian Calvinism that the true believer would persevere He may fall into sin at times, but ultimately he will not turn his back on the cross and he will not fall into permanent apostasy in this life. On the light side of that point, we have those who interpret it simply as eternal security. That's I refer to that with Lewis Berry Chafer. Anyway, these are the five points of Calvinism versus the five points of Arminianism. Uh, the five points of Calvinism are often rem- remembered by their um, acronym of the first letter, T for total inability, U for unconditional, L for limited, I for irresistible, P for perseverance. That spells TULIP. Those little tongue-in-cheek respond that it's either TULIP theology or it's daisy theology. Because you're never certain if you're saved, the Arminians think about God like maybe plucking the petals off a daisy. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. You're never really certain. Calvinists often assert that there's only one option, and that is Arminianism. You're either a Calvinist or you're Arminian. That is a logical fallacy that has excluded a middle. There is clearly a middle way that numerous theologians have articulated and developed down through the centuries that is neither in full agreement with the five points of Arminian, Arminianism or the five points of Calvinism. I define these terms for us that a hyper-Calvinist is not someone who's just a little more deterministic than you are. A hyper-Calvinist believes that because God has determined who will be saved, God will make sure they're saved without any help for you or me. And so that's a hyper-Calvinist. No need for evangelism. If God has determined that they'll be saved, they'll be saved, and so you don't need to worry about giving them the gospel. A high Calvinist is the term for a Dordian or a five-point Calvinist, whereas the term moderate Calvinist uh, describes anybody who is somewhat less than a five-point Calvinist. So we have these words that we need to understand. What does it mean to choose? What does it need to be predestined? What does it mean in terms of his will? Where does God's sovereignty end and man's volition begin? How are those related? And it all begins with understanding this term foreknowledge, which we began to look at last time. So we looked at the meaning of foreknowledge. We looked at how it's defined across the spectrum in the in the uh, lexicons, and with only a couple of minor exceptions, it is understood to mean prescience, that is, to know something ahead of time. 
And it should be translated that way, yet that is not the way that Calvinists will say the term should be understood or the term should be uh, translated. So we started looking at what the Bible teaches about foreknowledge, and I gave you this quote from Louis Burkhoff, a foremost Reformed theologian. He said, and he, they base their meaning in the New Testament. They go back and they go to the Old Testament, but they make the various little shifts. The Greek word is prognosko. Gnosko is the word for know. Pra means to know beforehand. Now, what they will do is they will drop the suffix, forget that suffix, and they'll say, well, gnosko also has this sense of a, of, a, of a choice, of an elective love. And they'll say, see, we see this in the Hebrew word yada, which also means to know. And I pointed this out time that last time that there are over 922 uses of the word yada in the Old Testament, and they can only come up with five that they say has this meaning of what uh, Burkhoff says is not merely knowing something ahead of time, not merely taking cognizance or being aware of some things about somebody, he says. It is taking... Uh, knowledge of one with loving care. So that's importing a whole host of ideas that are not substantiated by the data. Or he says, making one the object of loving care or elective love. And so he says, in this sense, it serves the idea of election and then lists three verses that uh, where he believes substantiate that. It's really interesting that as I was beginning my new a plan for reading through the Bible this year as I'm reading through Genesis uh, this last week. I came to the section from Genesis chapter 16 through 20, and I read in Genesis 18:19. This is the episode when God is talking to himself about whether or not to tell Abraham about what he is about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so as he is reasoning through this in this scripture he says for i have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the lord may bring to abraham what he has promised him this is the esv so i like to read different english translations so this year i'm reading through the esv i didn't catch this because the new king james translates translates this for i have known him Okay, but ESV has not translated it. The writer has, uh, the translator has interpreted it. So I'm using my iPad and I have Logos on that. And so I did a click on the word just to see, well, wait a minute. I don't remember chosen being there. So I clicked on the word to see what it was in the, in the Hebrew and it opens up my halot, the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, which is one of the most scholarly respected um, lexica for for Hebrew. And I read through, it must be three or four pages of data given in the print version, but I read through all of it, and there wasn't one light item in any of the stems, Cal, Pl, Pu'al, Hifil, any of them, that indicated anything close to being chosen or selected or elective love wasn't in there it was all had to do with knowing something about someone because that's what yada means the only 
exception is the idiom when it refers to sexual intimacy between two adults. That is the only only difference. There's nothing about this selective or elective love. Yet Calvinists base this doctrine of elective love on simply these five uses, the Genesis 18:19, as well as the others, and they read that, read that into that. So, the conclusion we came to is that the lexicons can provide no examples outside of the Bible where prognosco means anything other than prescience. Now, that's important. Sometimes you can go to the Bible, and Paul will clearly use a word that is within the um, lexica of Koine Greek, but he will use it a different way. That happens, so you have to be careful. But what we find is their arguments are not based on gnosko. They are based on uh, prognosco. Gnosko. And so in coming to their uh, conclusions, they ignore a certain amount of data because they take the prefix off and they do a, their study simply on the basis of the root verb and not on the whole, whole verb. Let me give you an example. If you understood the meaning of the word stall, that word could have a couple of meanings. A stall may be a place where you locate an animal. You put him in his stall. Or it could refer to something that happens to an aircraft. The engine suddenly stops and it is now in a stall position. So if you understand the word stall, does that help you understand the word install as you are opening up a Microsoft Word manual? Not at all. Because when you add a prefix to a word, it will change the meaning of the word. So they have a fundamental logical or semantic fallacy in the way they approach the meaning of the word, taking the word gnosko, which means to know, and then saying that trying to use that to support the meaning for pragnosko. There's only five uses in the Bible, and each one, as we'll see today, emphasizes the idea of knowing something ahead of time or uh, prescience. So the first one that we're going to look at, and you may wish to turn there in your Bible, is in Acts 26.5. Now, this is a good use to, uh, to establish as our baseline or benchmark for understanding the word because it is not in a theologically significant passage. And there are two of these that we will look at uh, in of these five that are not in theologically significant passages, but what that does is it helps us to understand how the word was used in in everyday sort of language. So we look at Acts twenty six five where we read Paul is speaking and he says they knew, and I've inserted words in brackets because they're inferred by the way these words would be used. They knew about me, that is, they knew beforehand about me, from the first, that knew, the word for knowledge there is prognosco. They knew about me from the first, 
if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. So the context here is that Paul is speaking to uh, Herod Agrippa II and reminds him that he, that is Agrippa, is very knowledgeable about the issues facing the Jews at that particular time. Paul is giving a an ap- apologio, a defense of, of his position. And so um, Paul goes on to remind him that he was in Jerusalem where he received his training, his rabbinical training, that he probably went there uh, at the time of his bar mitzvah when he was 13 or shortly thereafter. And so he was schooled under one of the most famous rabbis of that generation, Rabbi Gamaliel, And so all of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem at this time, which would be in the uh, early 50s or early to mid-50s A.D., would know a lot of facts about who Saul of Tarsus was. This is the traitor. This is the one who has apostatized from uh, Judaism. He has rejected the teaching of the rabbis, and he has now believed that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. So he is, he is, um, he is known. He is arguing by these leaders in Jerusalem already. And so what he is saying is they knew me from the first. They knew uh, who I was, and they knew uh, my background. And so as he is uh, telling them this, he's simply using the word prognosco as they knew about me, because that's the context. Uh, when it says someone knows me, what that means is not, a Calvinist will read, they have an intimate, elective love for you. Now, did the Pharisees, have you gotten there already? Did those Pharisees really have a an elective love for Paul? Is that right? No, that won't work there. Simply the root meaning of this word is they knew something about him ahead of time. It's prescience, okay? So that is, uh, that's important to understand, and it's also important to understand that when certain verbs in Greek are used, where it just states the verb and then the object, they knew me, in English we would supply the, the preposition about. Okay, that's implied within the Greek, uh, the Greek word itself. So he is talking about the fact that they would know about me. Knowledge is about something. It's knowing facts. It's knowing information about someone. I talked about this verse briefly at the end last time. We see this usage in Matthew 12:33, where Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad for a tree is known by its fruit. You know about the tree. You know something about the tree. See, that's implied there. You know something about the tree because you know its fruit. So you know what the tree is. So this idea of something being um, knowledge about someone in terms of the object of the verb uh, prognosco uh, is to know something about someone ahead of time. Now that becomes clear 
or clarified when we get into the second verse where prognosco is used in the New Testament in 1 Peter 1.20. So let's turn now to 1 Peter 1.20. You'll get a little bit of a sword drill this morning, which is good for some of you as you try to figure out where the books of the Bible are. 1 Peter should be knowledgeable by those of you who have been coming on, on uh, Thursday night. Okay. Let me pick up the context. He's talking about Christ and redemption in verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Tradition from the fathers is the oral law uh, that the rabbis taught. So he's he's rejecting that at this point. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed, now who's that describing? That pronoun, he is describing Jesus. He indeed was foreordained. That's the New King James Version, was foreordained. Now that idea, the term foreordained is pretty close to a synonym for predestination. But this is not the Greek word praharizo. This is the word prognosco. So, see, in the New King James Version here, you have another uh, illustration of a translator interpreting the word instead of translating the word. It should be translated, he, referring to Christ, was known about beforehand. He was known about by God the Father from before the foundation of the world. So this sets up a, also a contrast in the two clauses between something that was before the foundation of the world and something that is in these last times. Now, just as a side note, when Peter refers to these last times, what's he talking about? He's talking about the church age. He's not talking about the tribulation. He's not talking about, you know, when you get Christians together, they want to talk about the uh, last days. Well, here's a use of the phrase last times, and it is at the beginning of the church age, at the very beginning of the church age. We are in the last times. We just don't know when they're going to end, and Jesus will return, and then the last days for Israel will begin. But all of the church age are the last times of the church age, biblically speaking. So uh, don't get caught up into that sort of false understanding of this terminology. But he, Peter is saying that he indeed was foreordained. What's interesting is the NASB and the NET translated correctly as foreknown, but I put the NIV up here just so you see that that there are some uh, uh, other problems with the NIV as they are interpreting it rather than translating it. They translated, he was chosen before the creation of the world. So you see what I'm pointing out is that uh, when you come to translation and you're looking at the Greek, uh, don't impose your theology on the translation. Translate it. Go with what the lexica 
are saying. So this is very clear that this is talking, and it's talking about Jesus. He was known beforehand. It is not talking about elective love because Jesus is eternally the Son of God, and he is the choice one, but he is, and he in some passages you may translate it elect, but it's, he is chosen as the one who would provide salvation. So it is not talking about selection for salvation at all. Then turn over a couple of pages to our third verse, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 17. Second Peter verse th- chapter three verse seventeen. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, prognosco. So it again is this is the third use of the verb, I believe. Yeah, third use of the verb, and this is a statement that you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand. Uh, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness. So they are he's simply talking about that I have warned you about what is coming, so you know about it ahead of time. So that fits with the general usage and the meaning of, of the term. Now I have this next slide out of order, but we'll come back to that. I gotta remember that slide thirty six. Okay. Romans eight twenty eight to thirty is the Next, I left 30 out of the slide. It's the next section. So turn back to Romans chapter 8. This is the fourth use of prognosco in the, uh, in the New Testament. Romans 8, 28 to 30. Now Romans 8, 28 is a verse I hope many of you have memorized, one that provides great comfort to many of us. Uh, in times of difficulty when we don't understand why certain things have happened to us or happened the way they have. And Paul gives us this statement that we know that all things work together for good. doesn't say all things are good. It says all things work together for good. That is God's providential care. He is not working them together for good by violating the... Uh, volition of individual people. He works them together for good because he is able, even with the chaos of autonomous creatures who are autonomous to some degree, he is still powerful enough to work things out to his purposes without violating the volition of individuals in terms of their salvation, in terms of their eternal destiny. So we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And then Paul begins to describe how this happens. He says, he gives a list, of a, a chain of events It begins with foreknowledge. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So the first step there is the step 
uh, related to the knowledge of God, that he knew things ahead of time, and it is the knowledge of those things ahead of time that is related to what happens in the rest of that chain of events. So it is very clear here that foreknowledge is something that is totally distinct from predestination and that predestination is grounded on or is based on this prescience of God, his knowledge uh, ahead of time. And so we, we look at this and we come to understand that then is the basis. It just fits within foreknowledge. Now we have to connect this to 1 Peter 1, 2, which we'll do in a minute, but here it's the verb. 1 Peter 1, 2 is a noun. So I'm just taking us through the five uses of the verb first and then we'll look at the noun. The next use is a couple of chapters over Romans chapter 11. Now, we have to be reminded of the context here that in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, in these three chapters, Paul is talking about how God's justice is being displayed to the Jewish people. And in the beginning of this section, he is going to talk about the fact that he has not discarded his plan for the Jewish people. And that is laid out in the first three or four verses of uh, Romans chapter 9, where Paul says, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness by the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren. There he's talking about those who are Jews by virtue of their relationship to him genetically, my countrymen according to the flesh, who were Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, and who is over all the eternally blessed God. So he recognizes that the Jewish people are still God's chosen people, They are chosen as a corporate group for a purpose and that he has uh, given them the covenants and just because they have now as a whole rejected or as a primarily the majority of the entity, they have rejected uh, Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah, that that does mean that God has cast them away. That's a question that would naturally occur. And so this is what is brought up in Romans 11.1. He says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Now, again, this is used as a knowledge beforehand, who God knew beforehand. It is talking, it may be talking about uh, his relationship with the Jewish people from beforehand, just as yada is used to talk about God's, uh, he knew Abraham and he had a relationship with Abraham, but it's not talking about elective or selective love. You can't read that into it. So here it is, that, that becomes clear. And then he says, or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel. Now, what we see here is a reference to uh, Elijah, who was 
and going spiraling down into a self-absorbed pit of depression, thinking that he was the only one standing against the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And so he starts uh, complaining to God, as Paul describes in verse 3, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. And God's going to correct him, and he says... Um, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so the idea here is he's talking about God's foreknowledge, that God is knows that there are 7,000 who have not apostatized. He is not saying that these are the only 7,000 that are saved because we know that there are many who are saved who would still apostatize and they would fall away from the truth. As I was reading this week, thinking in terms of what I'm going to speak on next Sunday in Kiev and then the following Sunday in Zhutomer, I was reading through the episode of about Lot in, in Sodom. That's a great example of grace. Peter calls him righteous Lot. The angels had to drag him and his wife and daughters out of Sodom. He was still immersed in wanting to live in the midst of this horrid, pagan, perverted culture. There was no, quote, fruit to look at in Lot's life that would indicate that he was a believer. But Peter calls him righteous Lot. Why? Because he had believed in the promise of Messiah, and therefore he had received the imputation of righteousness, just as Abraham had in Genesis 15, 6, that God imputed it to him as righteous because he believed God, not because he had acted uh, in a correct manner. And so these 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal are not the only ones who are saved. They are just the only saved ones who are standing their ground. And so God, in his omniscience, knew that, and he knew it beforehand. So Romans uh, 11 continues to be uh, another argument that uh, uh, prognosco just means to know uh, beforehand. So those are the five passages that deal with verbs, and what we have seen according to usage is any idea of reading God's elective choice, elective love into those passages is fraudulent. It is um, a fallacy to do so. So let's now look at two usage where the noun is used. One is in Acts 2.23. Talking about Jesus, this is Peter on the day of Pentecost. And Peter is uh, explaining what has taken place that day. And in Acts 2.23, uh, I'll start with 2.22. He says, men of Israel, hear these, these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know him, that is Jesus of Nazareth, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. So now we have prognosis, which is the noun, uh, foreknowledge. And you have two words that are used here. The word uh, combination of harizo, 
which is translated deliberate or established, and purpose, which is the word will or plan, and then the second word uh, foreknowledge. Now, you have one article with two nouns here, and that is probably a Granville Sharp rule, but that doesn't mean that the two nouns are synonyms. We studied this a uh, a while back when we studied pastors and teachers. It means that these two things are intimately connected. In other words, God's plan is connected to his knowledge of things ahead of time. It doesn't distinguish them. They're not uh, identical. That isn't what the Granville Sharp says. It just says that these two nouns are going to be uh, they're going, they're going to be very similar, but they're going to be uh, uh, connected to one another. It does not mean that the determined purpose and intimate loving relationship of God, that doesn't fit. But it does fit that his determined purpose is based on his foreknowledge. That's the connection. And Peter brings this out very clearly. Remember, Peter is the one who's speaking in Acts 2.23. Peter is the one who's writing in 1 Peter 1.2. And he brings this out, he says, to his uh, recipients that they are elect, or I prefer the translation choice, according to the the, the foreknowledge of God. And that word according to has the idea of on the basis of or according to a principle in consistent with a principle or the ground of which, as in Second Thessalonians 2.9, when talking about the coming Antichrist, Paul writes, whose coming is according to or on the basis of or on the ground of the working of Satan. Okay, so that's the idea in kata. So what we have here is these clear statements from Romans 8, 29, 1 Peter 1, 2, that, there's a, that there is a relationship between God's plan and purpose and his knowledge, that he is not planning apart from his knowledge. And so that brings us back to understand the, the relationship between God's omniscience and his foreknowledge. In Calvinism, they will say that God, uh, God does not know anything that he has not predetermined. That's the only way God can know for certain that it will happen is he predetermines it. And so they limit his omniscience. They limit his omniscience to that which he uh, controls. They will reject the idea that God knows everything that can happen, everything that could possibly happen, that which truly will happen, and that which could have, might have, or should have happened. That is a profound understanding of omniscience that God has that level of knowledge. It is a knowledge that is beyond us. So foreknowledge is a subset of his omniscience. He knows all that will happen, but in his foreknowledge, he knows beforehand what will happen. In Calvinism, they they reject the idea that this has anything to do with whom with who will be uh, elect. Now, here's the problem with that. The problem with that is 
that they want to make faith meritorious. They separate saving faith from any other category of faith so that saving faith is a special gift from God. That's not what Ephesians 2.89 is talking about. It is talking about for our uh, salvation by grace through faith, it's the whole phrase, is not of works. It is not faith. They're different uh, genders in, in the Greek, and so you have to understand the phraseology there. We'll cover this a little more as we go forward. But they will say that if... God's foreknowledge informs him that someone will believe in Christ as Savior, then you're putting the cause of their salvation and the merit of their salvation on their faith. But the merit isn't in faith. Faith is non-meritorious. Anybody can believe. What are the illustrations Jesus uses for faith? Eating, drinking. These are things anybody can do. The merit isn't in faith. Merit is Faith is simply the means. It's not the cause of salvation. Uh, the Greek is very clear of that in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is dia plus the genitive. If it were because of faith, it would be dia plus the accusative. The grammar is very clear. It's through faith. The merit is the object of faith. The merit is the cross of Christ. The merit is what Jesus did on the cross. We are not saved because we believe. We are saved because Christ died on the cross. We are saved through faith because it is through faith that we appropriate that to ourselves. And so when you say that God, uh, I am not saying that the only factor in and this is God's foreknowledge. But what the Calvinist says is he excludes all of his omniscience from making this choice. That means his choice is arbitrary and not based on any factor of his knowledge. And God is not an arbitrary God. God is not going any, meeny, miny, mo to determine who is going to be saved and who will not. The salvation is determined by our volition and our response to the hearing of the gospel. God indeed does know what will happen if things were different. Jesus demonstrates this in Matthew eleven twenty three. He says, And you, Capernaum, now at Capernaum, which is where Jesus lived, where Peter lived, those of us who have been to Israel have gone there, we've seen the house of Peter, uh, you, Capernaum, they rejected Jesus. They rejected his miracles. You, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven. Why? Because this was where Jesus lived. Will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it, it meaning Sodom, would have remained until this day. See, Jesus knew what would happen if Sodom had made other choices. If there were other circumstances, he knows the alternatives. And you can extrapolate that ad infinitum, and it will blow your mind that no matter how many different choices you and I might have made in life, God knows exactly how all of that would have been played out, and you just multiply that by the billions and billions of people on the planet. Thomas Edgar, who was the head of the Greek department at Capital Bible Seminary until he retired, and I got to know him to some degree because he was Dan Ingram's uh, Greek professor for many, many courses. And uh, I had recommended Dan to go study under uh, Dr. Edgar 
mid-90s, Dan called me up one day and said they're going to kick me out of the Marine Corps here before long, and I'm going to have to go back to what my original plan was and probably go in the ministry. He had been accepted to Dallas Seminary in 72, but had decided to go into the Marine Corps, which instead of being four years turned into 28 years. So I said, what, he said, what should I do? And I knew he was living in D.C. I said, hey, go up to Capitol Bible Seminary. The head of the Greek department there is Tom Edgar. He went to the Naval Academy and took his commission in the Marine Corps. You guys are going to find a lot in common. And then he went to Dallas Seminary and got his THM and his THD there, and he's published a lot of books. He wrote an excellent article for the Chafer Journal on foreknowledge, and he concludes... Thus, God knows everything that will happen if he causes it, if he causes only some of it, or if he merely allows it to happen. Think about that. That's a heavy sentence. God knows everything that will happen if he causes it, if he causes only some of it, or if he merely allows it to happen. Since he is omniscient, he knows what will happen even if he allows the universe to be completely random. He knows what will happen regardless of the cause. Whether man can philosophically explain how this works is irrelevant. Since man has no ability to explain something only God possesses, that is the kind of knowledge God has, and about which man knows nothing apart from Scripture. I thought that was a well-thought-out paragraph, a good conclusion. So when we understand these issues related to uh, God's plan and purpose, God's knowledge ahead of time provides data on which he makes choices and develops his plan and purposes. So next time when I come back from Kiev, we'll plug this into our understanding of predestination and election. Father, we thank you for this time we have to study your word, to work our way through your revelation, to understand how you have even structured your word, to understand to some degree what your word teaches about your foreknowledge, and to understand that in your plan and purpose, your sovereign rule is not abrogated by the random or arbitrary decisions of creatures who exercise their volition in foolish, unwise, and sinful ways. But you are able even to control the consequences of the chaos from sin. And that is beyond our understanding. So that you bring about that which you intended. And above all, you allow us the freedom to decide whether or not to accept your free gift of grace that salvation is based on faith in Jesus Christ, and that's the most important decision we'll ever make. Father, we pray that those who are listening would come to understand that, that this is a decision for them to make. God is not going to abrogate your responsibility, for that is the issue. Are you going to obey him or not? Are you going to believe in Christ or not? Are you going to trust in Jesus alone for salvation? And that is the gospel presentation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved.
Father, for the rest of us, it gives us great comfort because we know that we are in line with your plan and purpose when we trust in Christ and that that places us in him. And in him, we have incredible blessings and privileges and assets. Help us to understand these things as we go forward in Ephesians, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.